You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Well, amen indeed. If you would, take your Bible and open Psalm 73. We'll be examining Psalm 73 this morning in our time in the Word. My name is... Pastor Aaron, and it's a joy. I know we may have some guests given the holiday seasons, and if you are a guest, we are very thankful uh, that you're able to be with us here today, and of course those online as well. We're looking at the totality of Psalm 73. There's quite a bit there, so we'll be moving at a pretty good clip this morning. I promise I'll keep it under two hours. (laughs) Some of you are getting to know me, and you know that might not be an idle threat, so I promise it'll be less less than an hour even. We're looking at all of Psalm 73. The title of this message is Treasuring God in Times of Trouble. Treasuring God in Times of Trouble. And the subtitle is probably just as informative. It is Lessons from the Life of Asaph, which is the author of our psalm this morning. So let's pray and ask God to unfold his riches and his glory from his word. So, Father, we come to you again. We simply ask for grace. Lord, here on this final Sunday of the year, and I look out at the faces of my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, some I know are weary from this year, others I can safely assume. Lord, there are myriad needs represented here in this place and online. And I don't know. I'm no prophet. I'm a sinner in need of grace myself. I don't know how to address every need. I feel with Paul who is sufficient for these things. But one thing I know, one thing I know that we all need, regardless of age, status, time in the faith, is we need to see the glory of Christ and a strong, high, lofty view of a sovereign God who looks down from heaven and holds the wicked in derision and laughs. So Lord, would you help us to trust you in times of trouble and learn all that we can from this precious psalm. This psalm, among many, but this one in particular, has been a lifeline for many saints through the centuries. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do the same today. For any teetering saint, barely holding on, though they may put on a good front on a Sunday morning, but if they are crumbling inside, good shepherd, would you come and fight for them and claim them? In Jesus' name, amen. Treasuring God in Times of Trouble, Psalm 73. So as a thought exercise, if you were asked to preach the final Sunday of a year like 2020, what would you preach? Just think about that. If someone came to you and said, you're going to be preaching the last Sunday, this is the last gathered time of fellowship in the Word for a year like 2020, where would you go? How would you minister to the needs of God's people? 
what would you say? Although every year is fraught with peril, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, there's never been an easy year for those who bear the cross of Christ. And yet, 2020 has been marked by numerous challenges, obviously COVID-19, violence in the streets, tension, political intrigue, a contested presidential election, church gatherings interrupted, elderly loved ones isolated and alone, ominous political agendas that may threaten further the sanctity of life, and the sanctity of marriage, a million anxieties. And just to put the cherry on top of 2020, why not throw in murder hornets? What was that? I was waiting for the announcement of the zombie apocalypse after I heard about murder hornets. All of these troubles conspire to threaten us with a gnawing sense of hopelessness. And as a pastor, I am zealous to combat hopelessness because, because unchecked, unchallenged hopelessness is a real threat to perseverance in the faith. And so I've got a real pastoral burden for my soul, for my family's souls, for yours as brothers and sisters in Christ to go to Psalm 73, which is uniquely tuned to address these issues and to fight that we might trust God in times of trouble because a gnawing sense of hopelessness can undermine perseverance. So it's not a game. No perseverance, no heaven. And so I pray that we would come alongside and listen to Brother Asaph. Brother Asaph, I feel like I know him because I've, I've gone to Psalm 73 time and time again, and he has helped me. He has pulled my toes back from the ledge of faithlessness, even, even apostasy, if I'm real honest with you. And I pray that he does the same for us. Psalm 73 is like reading someone's diary. When you go to the Psalms, they help you think biblically and feel biblically. And Psalm 73 is like reading Asaph's diary. If you were to boil it down, big psalm, a lot of content. If I were to boil it down into one sentence, and I'm always aiming for that elusive thesis statement to try to say it clearly, I think this is what I would say. In times of trouble, we fight hopelessness by trusting and treasuring God. In times of trouble, we fight hopelessness by trusting and treasuring God. We're going to learn three lessons from Asaph in Psalm 73. And the first lesson that we learn is this. Lesson one, the absurdity of self-pity. The absurdity of self-pity. If you look at verses 1, 2, and 3 in Psalm 73 and read them backwards, I just kind of noticed this. You get the entirety of the psalm right there. Look at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, which led to verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. But praise God, we're going to end at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
So there's Psalm 73 in a nutshell, but let's work through it in order here. A Psalm of Asaph. You see that heading in your Bible. I, I hope that most of you have that. Who is Asaph? We don't know a lot, but what we do know is very, very instructive. He was a Levitical choir master. He was a leader. He would lead the people in singing. He held a position of authority, if you will. And that's really instructive, guys, because what we're going to go on to see is a man who's painfully honest about his own life. No one is immune. Whether you're a Levite, a choir master, doesn't matter title, doesn't matter creed, doesn't matter any of those things, no one is immune to the gnawing sense of hopelessness that often comes in times of trouble. Because look at what Asaph says here in verse 1. I love this declaration. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Isn't it true, beloved, that often the theology in our head is better than the theology in our hearts? Asaph knows the truth. He's got good theology. He says, surely God is good to Israel. I know the truth here. But there's a long six inches from your head to your heart sometimes, beloved, when troubles conspire against you. Because look at what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. That's not just poetry. What is he saying there? He, he's not saying that I almost had my fellowship interrupted. He says, I almost fell away. To use Paul's verbiage, he goes, I almost made shipwreck of this thing. I almost steered the little vessel of faith right into the rocks. And so my ears perk up and I go, I've been there. What'd you do? What brought you to such a place? And this is where it gets really instructive for a year like 2020. Look at verse 3. For, I almost made shipwreck of my faith. For, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hmm. He says, I almost made shipwreck when I looked around, even though I had good theology in my brain, when I look around and it seems that evil is prospering and it seems that God's people are marginalized and it seems that the gospel's being hindered and it seems like wickedness is running rampant in the streets and I find myself in Vanity Fair and it's going unchecked. He says, when I saw that, despite the fact that I know, I know God is good, but my feet almost slipped. And you know why I call it the absurdity of self-pity? Because when you start taking your eyes off of God and start putting them on yourself, look at the superlative language, starting at verse 4. I, 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 I don't know, but I know because I've been there. I don't think he even believes what he's saying right now because of what he said in verse 1. He says, I know God is good to Israel. I'm a Levite. But look at what he says in verse 4. Look at the superlative language. For they, the godless, have no pains until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. When it says their eyes swell out through fatness, that means a a sign of health. I know a lot of us overdid it this weekend, myself included. They scoff and they speak with malice. You You see the superlative language? They have no pains. Their lives are great. They have no problems, plenty of money. They, they're never judged for what they do. They get away with murder. Whenever you find yourself using all, every kind of language, you're probably not thinking real lucidly because life is more nuanced than that. And I just, I'm looking at it and in my notes I'm going, I wrote, really, Asaph? You really believe that? You really think that the wicked and the godless have no pains until death? And you know what I think he would say? I think he would say exactly what Job said in Job chapter 6. Do you remember that little interesting little exchange when Job's having a really hard time and his friends come to him and try to counsel him on his theology? What did Job say in Job 6.26? He says, do you think that you can rebuke words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You know what he means? He says, I know the truth, guys. I get it. I've I've been studying Scripture for a long time. I don't really mean what I'm saying. I'm just hurting right now. That has blessed my marriage because there's times where I'll look at my wife and I'll say, do I need to fix something? And she'll say, these are just words for the wind. I know better. I've got better theology than this. I'm just hurting right now and I'm scared. I say, okay. But it's not just he looks around and says, wickedness is getting away with murder. The wicked are prospering. This is killing me. It's not just how they live their lives. It's also what they say. Look at verse 8. Remember, all this is under the heading of, I know the truth, but I still almost lost it. Verse 8 says, they scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. What does that mean? It says, it's not just how they live, it's that they get away with blasphemy. They get away with cursing God. They get away with saying things that are just absolutely unbiblical and demeaning to the God of heaven that gives them life. It's kind of like that song. Sometimes we sing it at Christmas. I heard the bells. That one line I thought of when I read Asaph's lament when hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It's not only is evil getting away, it just seems like evil is getting away with it, but they're mocking the very law of God. Almost as if they're tempting God. They're they're arrogant against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth as if they're saying, what will God do? Where's your Jesus now? Bible banger, where's your payoff? Does he really believe that? That's how it feels. And the reason that I'm zealous to get this right 
is because of where this is all going for Asaph. Look at verse 10. He's going to keep walking through the song. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. There's a temptation. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? These are the wicked now. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I don't fear your God. I am the captain of my own fate. And by the way, it's working out pretty good. How's your life? It's killing Asaph. He says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. And the reason that I'm zealous to get this right and avoid the absurdity of self-pity. A, I'm going, A, you know better than this. Stop saying all and every. Their lives are not like that, but that's how it feels. But look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And right there, I'm going, brother, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't look out here and see what seems to be the unending, unchecked, unrelenting prosperity of wickedness and then look at yourself and say, all in vain have I kept my hands clean. But he's not even saying, he's a leader. Because what does he say in verse 15? He says, if I were to articulate what I felt, I would have caused other people to stumble. Vis-a-vis, I could put on a good face on Sunday morning. I wouldn't dare tell anybody this, but on the inside, I'm really struggling because it seems like all my prayers, all my time spent in service, all my pleading with the Lord, when I look back at this year, it seems like it's all for naught. And that's why we need to go to point number two. Not only do we learn the lesson of the absurdity of self-pity. Lesson number two is the grace of self-awareness. The grace of self-awareness. Look at verse 16. Asaph says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When he says, When I try to make sense of why the world seems so bizarre, that the people of God are marginalized, that my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, and yet wickedness and evil and fear are running rampant through the streets. Because when I try to understand what's going on, it seems a wearisome task. He's depressed, guys. When you're depressed, everything is heavy. Every color is gray. Everything falls with a bite. He's a guy. He says... I've taken my eyes off of the Lord and it's caused a bout of spiritual depression to fall on me. When he says here in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. To put that in modern parlance, he's saying, I can't even right now. Is there any hope for this guy? Is there any hope for us? Because I don't know about you, but I almost didn't want to preach this because it was so personal to me. 
But look at verse 17. I thought how to understand this, and it was a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then, then I discerned their end. Part of it, it drives me nuts, because I want to ask him, what did you do there? Because the rest of the psalm is glorious. (laughs) We have to infer. What do you mean you went into the sanctuary of God, then all of a sudden you kind of came to. Well, he didn't go into the sanctuary alone. We have every reason to believe, especially with the office that Asaph held, that this is a time of corporate worship in the presence of Yahweh. When I came, and how many times do the Psalms talk like that? I want to go with the throng to the house of God. There's something about the grace that God pours out when the people of God come together, sing his praises, open his word, encourage one another to look to him, confess their sins, love one another. There's something, some transaction took place there in the sanctuary of God that woke him up. And he says, it's when I went there and I worshiped God, when I heard the word and I heard my, how many times have we come in weary and feeling like big fat hypocrites, but then there's something about hearing that rush of voices of your brothers and sisters wash over you saying, worthy is the lamb. And it just sweeps you up in it. And you're like, man, I'm glad I came today. I need to be here with you. That's what's happening to this guy. It is the word sung and preached and spoken that was the proverbial smelling salts to Asaph. And he says, it's when I went into the sanctuary of God, when I got out of myself, out of my head, and went with my brothers and sisters, and the word of God was opened, then I discerned therein. What did you see, Asaph? Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You hear what he's saying right there? Because when I got out of myself and I went with the people of God to the sanctuary of God and I worshiped him, it's what I knew to be true from my head sunk into my heart and I realized you are sovereign. You, O God, caused them to fall into slippery places. It is not by chance the very first doctrine that brings him back to spiritual sanity is the sovereignty of God over everything, including the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. I love this. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's like when you wake up out of a dream and It's kind of lingering with you, but then it just fades away like a mist. You ever have that? I had a dream one time I I bought Osama bin Laden a milkshake, and Tanya woke me up in the middle of it. She had no idea what I was talking about. took me a little bit to kind of come to, but then once I came to, it it was gone. It's like, that was ridiculous. He's using that kind of imagery. He says, Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you reveal yourself as the sovereign God, your power, your might... He says, you, you push them away like a fog. It's nothing to you. 
What seems so dominant and prevalent to me and strong and insurmountable to you is just a fog. And also, I want to just point out, I don't want to linger here, but he's coming to his spiritual senses. He's getting his feet underneath him. He's not stumbling anymore. And one of the means that brought him there was gathered worship with the people of God and hearing the word of God. And another one, and we have to have a place for this in our theology. It can't be the only place or else we're going to be overbalanced. But this is an imprecation. What do you do with the imprecatory psalms when he says, oh Lord, break the teeth of the wicked? How do you preach that? There is a place to say with Paul in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That is a means of grace to the faltering saints. To say and to know in our heads and in our hearts, not with any glee or delight as if we are any better, but it is a means of grace when it seems that trouble is cascading over your life, wickedness is rampant, evil is unchecked, to go to the house of God, to preach to yourself the fact that God is sovereign and he has set his king in Zion and his name is Jesus Christ. There is no corrupt politician, there is no abortion doctor, there is no spin doctor that will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and I pray it comes soon. And that is meant to put granite under your feet to say there is no ounce of evil that will not be checked and called to account either on the cross or in hell, but Jesus Christ will make it right. And that is one way we fight for faith in times of trouble, and I see him doing it right here. Now something else happened to him because he sees the sovereignty of God over all things that God will render all accounts settled. He'll make, to use Lewis's verbiage, the sad things come untrue. It will not always be winter in Narnia, beloved. But he also sees something of himself. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, You can just draw a line from verse 21 to verse 13, back to verse 2. What really caused you to almost fall away, Asaph? If he's really honest, in light of verse 21, he would say, I was angry at God. Matter of fact, I was bordering on on bitterness toward God because it just doesn't, it didn't seem right. But now he's realizing, in fact, you don't question the potter. This is the grace of self-awareness that we all need. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, oh God. That is grace. That is grace to be brought to that humbling awareness. Because why, why do I say it's grace? Because it sets us up for the third and final lesson. Lesson number three, the joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy of self-forgetfulness. Verse 23, 
Notice how his verbiage has now changed completely. Up until verse 23, it was very horizontal. It was they, them, their, I, me, my. But now that he's gone to the sanctuary of God, he's worshiped God, he's heard the word of God, he's got the theology in his head down into his heart, all of a sudden his verbiage is now vertical. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You see how different that is? He's not even thinking about himself anymore. He is God-entranced, God-besotted, riveted on who God is. And that sets him up for this beautiful passage here. Look at verse 25 and 26, probably the most well-known part of this psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? What, by the way, remember in the very beginning he says, my feet had almost slipped. Why didn't you fall utterly, Asaph? It's because of verse 23. You hold my right hand. So don't think that Asaph is some inherently moral person. No, no, no. It is because he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. All of this brings him to verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. But isn't that really the source of most of our problems is inordinate desire for everything but God? But if we can be brought to that place of humility where God truly satisfies our hearts, we might stand a chance of surviving times of trouble with a smile. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Why is this a good sermon at the end of 2020 going into 2021? Because here's, here's what you already know, but I'll just say it. I'm not a prophet, and I have no idea what's coming in the next year. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that, oh, your miracle's coming, you know, and all this garbage you hear on the televangelist. I have no idea. It might be worse. But look at Asaph. He leaves that option open because he's found a greater treasure. He has found a faith-sustaining reality that is only found in the goodness of God. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, maybe. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have found him to be satisfying. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Look at the last verse. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And look where this whole thing ends. He goes from saying, I'm almost out of the faith. 
And I wouldn't dare say anything about how I feel to this generation of your people because I would cause them to stumble. But when I went in the sanctuary, I saw who you are. I had that Isaiah 6 revelation of myself that I'm, I'm wallowing in self-pity. Now I'm going vertical. It's you, you, you. Who do I have in heaven but you? There's nothing I desire on earth besides you. And it overflows in verse 28. He says, but for me, it's good to be near God that I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works from near apostasy to evangelism. Could it be, paradoxically, the way God often does things in a year of trouble, going into a year perhaps of more trouble, but if we could get a vision of God specifically in the face of Jesus Christ and who he is, how good he is, how sovereign he is, that paradoxically 2021 could be a banner year for evangelism and missions. Could it be? I pray that it is. So what do we do with it? How do you apply a text this big? Two things. There's either a hundred applications or there's two. (laughs) We'll go with two. If you were to say, okay, pastor, there's a lot going on here. I, I see two main things that Asaph would commend to us. Feed your head and feed your heart. Number one, feed your head. How do we trust God in times of trouble? You can't trust a God you don't know. You can't love what you don't know. And so if we want to avoid the slippery feet, the mute speech, the brutish and arrogant attitude toward God, if we want to steer clear of that, we need to make sure that we are prepared for the day of trouble. I praise God that Asaph was ready, back in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel. I praise God that before the trouble came, he had good theology to fall back on. When the grenades are launched and the rounds are being fired, is not a great time to break out the owner's manual for your field rifle. That should have happened months ago, and because I want you to make it, I pray that this year we would either throw these in the garbage or redeem them and pack them with weapons to fight for faith. Meaning, refnet, desiring God, grace to you, daily readers, devotionals, the McShane Bible reading plan. Use this thing to feed your head. We have an embarrassment of riches in our day and age Use it. Scripture memorization. Not just reading the Word of God, but memorizing it. You can't always grab your Bible when trouble comes. You can't always grab your Bible when the bullets are flying. But if you've got it lodged in there, like Asaph, you can say, I know God is good to Israel. I can't believe what I'm seeing out here. I'm scared to death for what's going to happen this coming week, this coming year. But right now, my heart knows there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because Romans 8.1 has been part of my DNA for so long. Get back to that place of arming yourself with the Word of God. It's not just for Awanas. Get back to a place of prayer. Yes, corporately, but beloved, I beseech you. 
get back to the place of fasting and praying and interceding. If the Lord wakes you up at 2 a.m. to say, go downstairs and pray, go pray. And some of you know what I mean. Gathered worship. Come into the sanctuary of God. And come hungry for the word. Go to the Sunday school classes. Do your devotional reading. Preach to yourself in light of verse 13. This is not in vain. Feed your head. But not only that, lest we become unbalanced, feed your heart. What do I mean? It's one thing to say, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel. It's another thing to feel that in verse 25 and 26. I don't want you when trouble presses in on you. I don't know who's going to die this year. I don't know what funerals we're going to do. I don't know what call you're going to get from the doctor. I don't have a clue what's going on in Washington. But I want you to have it in your head. So in verse 1, you can say intuitively, God is good. He's proven it on the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? He's proven his goodness in Christ. And my heart cries out, not just my brain, my heart says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing I desire, desire on earth beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May he grant us grace to treasure him supremely in times of unrelenting trouble. And may we say in the coming year, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire on earth beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Guys, we got one last song for 2020. It's called All I Have is Christ. Some musicians, if you want to come up, I just, I ask a favor. As a brother in Christ, as a pastor, could we, instead of groveling out of a year that everybody is called a dumpster fire, could we get the theology that we know to be true from our head to our hearts and maybe sing like we mean it? as a testimony that we are not a hopeless people, and by God's grace, we are not going to be a fearful people? Could we maybe sing it with everything we got as a declaration that we can say our flesh and our hearts may fail in 2021, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever? Could we just ruffle the devil's feathers a little bit? I would really enjoy that. So I'm going to quickly pray that I'm going to jump down there and I'm going to sing with you.